Okay, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It is the 17th of November, 10.30 UAE time, a very different time in many of the places where our guests are joining us at the moment, uh, and we appreciate uh, their early mornings or late nights, uh, the combination of it all. Um, Fred crude oil trading below $80 uh, uh, and uh, took a big dive earlier this week and as uh, well yesterday, uh, most notably, uh, and uh, is staying there holding today early morning trade in Asia would indicate that prices are pretty much at 77.43, not much change this morning, uh, uh, and looking for direction perhaps, but it's been one-way travel really on this oil market, it seems to me, uh, uh, since June, to be honest. Uh, the big bionic pole that uh, the Saudi oil minister put up in the tent of his unilateral one million barrel a day cut it, it, it has kept the, everything up and elevated for some time. But it seems the gravity of demand outlook is finally weighing back to what we were seeing in June. Uh, that's at least my sense of things. Let's kick off with Rob Barnett, Emmy, a lead of energy and commodity research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Rob, because I want to capture the collective aggregate of all of your amazing colleagues, because I know you guys were meeting uh, in New York this week, and uh, I've had a chance to put together your collective sense of where the world is at, and particularly the oil markets at the moment. So, Rob, your thoughts uh, this side of a bre- of a U.S. GDP number of 4.9% in the third quarter, and a rate or uh, inflation rate dropping recently, the latest print at 3.2%. How do those two things go together and end up with a minus oil price? Your thoughts? Well, g- great to join you. And, uh, w- you know, we are always looking at the signals in the market. And uh, we, we actually put out a note uh, just yesterday that basically found sub $80 is the fair value of of oil at the moment. And it's an interesting bit of work that a couple of my colleagues have done where they've built a basically a, a, a regression model that looks at all the financial variables, including some of the ones you just mentioned, and sort of arrives at, at a price. And it's got a high high adjusted R squared, a good fit. And despite all the geopolitical risk and everything else that's out there in the market, uh, you know, the, we, we can't, uh, can't seem to uh, excite the oil market. And frankly, w- what are the factors there? Well, with, uh, with, with inflation looking under control, I think uh, that that's going to essentially play into interest rate policy. And as you're probably aware, or at least some of the signals we're seeing is that the uh, demand outlook, at least here in the near term, is looking pretty bleak, and all those things add up to an oil price that um, that that really is, uh, you know, not uh, not where some of the uh, folks who are looking at the geopolitical side of the equation might think. Well, let's go to a fellow American sitting out in, in the wilds of Colorado, which means it isn't as early in the morning as it is for you, as he's, at, I think, stayed late at night. Brian Perry, founding member of Energy Rogue. Brian, I wanted to get your insights on one of the big factors that, you know, it seems to be, I've seen this movie before, part of this bucket of issues is, you know, shale is back. U.S. production is back. It's 13 plus 
Uh, and we're back again at that movie where OPEC Plus tries to cut its way into a uh, a positive number. And our friends in West Texas say, well, wait a second there. We thank you for the big number you're giving us on the dollar size of the barrel. But we're going to just keep pumping more and more. Where are those two things going a week or so before the next OPEC Plus meeting? How are they meant to look at the West Permian and its threat to their efforts to keep the pole up in the tent? Now, that's a great that's a great question and a great lead in to some of the insight that we've been looking at. So the EIA reports crude oil at 13.2 million barrels a day. One sub note is about six million is considered natural gas liquids. So the absolute crude oil is is close to just shy of nine million barrels a day. Um, but I'm going to throw a couple of facts at you. Uh, number one. We have a U.S. decline of over 620,000 barrels a day every month. So that means we have to replace that with new production. So since June, we have dropped 18% of our rigs. So that means that as a leading indicator in three to 12 months, we're going to see a production response. Another fact is... The EIA actually changed how they report crude oil production in August. And you could take a look at their uh, production. It looks like in August, uh, production shot up like 600, 700,000 barrels a day. If you normalize that adjustment in how they're reporting crude oil, year on year, we're about 400,000 above where we were last year. So that is growth but not quite as dramatic as most people might think. Uh, but you struck on the key point, uh, or robbed it. The uh, economy is really going to weigh on thing, weigh on things. Uh, the, the war in Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, 2024 elections. And now they, coming up with the OPEC meeting, I mean, this is going to be a very interesting winter season and into 2024, I expect more volatility. Well, it's a good segue into our European-based uh, analyst this morning, Dr. Charles Elinas, CEO of Cypress Natural Hydrocarbons Company and a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. Dr. Charles, there's many of those pieces I'd like to get your insights on. Uh, and that is, I mean, all of them together that just signed off there from Brian would indicate so much uncertainty that would be bullish for markets, it's bullish on the supply side because we don't know where the two wars are going with terms of Russia, Ukraine, uh, uh, Israel's invasion of Gaza, uh, and, and the possibilities of, of disruption there. At the moment, everybody's discounting that. But where do you think, out of all those issues, Dr. Charles, uh, Europe, uh, what direction of travel Europe can give to the energy markets as we now move deeper into winter? Well, I'm not sure that Europe is in a position to give any direction at the moment. Europe is uh, in the... in the. Uh, well, we are talking about uh, Denmark being asked to police uh, Russian tankers coming out of the Baltic Sea and other things like that with extra sanctions. So, so welcome some insights on that as well. Well, I mean, they, they have been asked to do that, but uh, it's uh, there is also a view that it's not going to be easy to apply anything like that because there might be implications elsewhere. 
So it's at the moment, there's a lot of talk. But uh, the problem in Europe at the moment is that the European Commission is in, a, in an election mode. We are not far from elections. And as a result, they're trying to limit uh, what they do. They're trying to pluck holes uh, that they left behind. They're trying to um, bring this legislation for uh, climate change into some sort of uh, conclusion before the uh, a, a new a new commission comes in place. But also, there is a change in within the European countries and in a lot of European in, in many European countries. Uh, governments are coming that uh, are um, not in line with the European Commission anymore, uh, moving in a different direction. Germany is the 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 engine of Europe is no longer the engine of Europe. It's, it's suffering massively uh, as a result of these high prices, as a result of uh, not having cheap Russian gas. And for example, uh, the uh, heavy industry in Germany is down twenty percent. Since the since since before the uh, COVID nineteen, and that is weighing heavily on Germany and its role. Um, so Europe, Europe, uh, France is uh, is not leading either. So Europe is is dithering, dithering at the moment. There are signs that something may happen, but uh, nothing really is happening. Europe is in a in a mode of uh, preparing for change after the elections uh, in Brussels next year. Rob, if I was going to Vienna as one of the members of the OPEC delegations uh, next week, uh, I'd be quite confused of how to read the outlook for the U.S. economy. Uh, you've recently returned there, Rob, uh, and uh, you know you've you've seen all the headlines. Obviously, in terms of what one might expect. I was in America recently, and I didn't see any soft landing, hard landing, no landing at all. Is the U.S. economy <laughs> going to get to its new dawn of uh, uh, back-to-basis uh, inflation rate without a landing? And uh, economy printing 4.9% in the third quarter. What's your outlook on that macro picture? Well, yeah, it's a bit out of my realm to sort of prognosticate on the macro side uh, of the equation. Although I would say, you know, just just being in the U.S. was you know, traveling up and down the East Coast. Uh, everything's humming along right now. So, if, if I, th I think recessions are difficult to predict, and people have been talking about the uh, the possibility of one for some time now, and I, I think this is just not the kind of thing that you generally include in in your base case. So. Uh, let's see how things unfold. But uh, the restaurants are busy. People are out shopping. There is very little indication to me that we have uh, or that we're entering any kind of uh, difficulty. On that point, I mean, I know you've been talking with your colleagues about the outlook for rate hikes. Are we done? Is this now the point in which we plateau and 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 the next move is a cut or? Uh, given the, you know, we saw the consumer price index come in recently beyond better than expected, uh, which is this ultimately the backbone of the U.S. economy here. Uh, it's inflation at 3.2. Is that acceptable or is the Fed going to have to look to do more? What's a, a growing consensus there? Yeah, my 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 perspective is that the, the market seems to have read the latest, latest in, inflation print as an indication that the 
the Fed is going to at least pause and possibly uh, cut at some point. And you particularly can see it in some of the uh, clean energy stock names. They they all rallied quite a bit, and they've they've been essentially trading inversely with uh, interest rates over time over the last uh, year plus. And and the basic narrative there is that you know high, higher interest rates uh, affect capital intensive uh, businesses, and so you know if you're doing solar or wind, high, higher interest rates have basically been pumping the, the brakes on demand. And I, I do get the sense that at least just looking at the stock price movements, that uh, many folks on the street kind of interpret it as at least a pause. Brian, what are the things that this recent oil price decline reversal has come alongside of? And I welcome your thoughts as to if there is an intersection point. Is not only the U.S. production numbers are looking uh, pretty robust and at record levels, but it also come at a time with the re-engagement with Venezuela, uh, uh, of course, a major uh, historic supplier to the U.S. and the Gulf Coast. Uh, the Gulf Coast refiners love that Venezuelan crude. Uh, what's the outlook there and how is that impacting, do you think, this softening outlook? So... It, it... That's a great question, because one of the interesting things is even though we're at 13.2 million barrels a day, that does include natural gas liquids. The U.S. exports roughly five million barrels a day every day, but we import over six. So we import a different type of crude. And that's where some interest in uh, the Middle East crude as well as Venezuela, different types of crude actually fit the refining fleet in the United States. So Venezuela coming back in is a very important variable, but you got to you got to remember it's probably going to take them at at minimum I'd say eighteen months before you really see anything impactful. That's my back of the envelope that. Yes, it is going to make a long-range impact. Most people are concerned about uh, inventories right now, but I would say for crude oil and refined products, this is a normal build type of season. And crude oil in the United States, crude products and distillates are still on the five-year lows and sometimes even setting new five-year lows on the stock side of the equation so right now, there's as Rob mentioned, there's nothing in the economy that's really indicating a slowdown. But one of the interesting things that I heard from um, a gentleman at the Federal Reserve was that the reason our growth rate has been so robust this year is they're catching up on the backlog of all the COVID orders. It's backlogged. And that there's not much future. Is this orders COVID and, golden goose ever going to stop giving gifts to the American economy? I mean, from pay, I don't you know. paychecks in the post into your letterboxes <laughs> to IRA infrastructure. I mean, you guys are like Santa Claus. No wonder your debt's <laughs> over thirty trillion dollars. My God, you're gonna you're not gonna get the hard landing. You're gonna get the I'm going off the cliff landing. Please send a memo to the rest of the world when that moment happens. It's like nobody can be in pain anymore in America, it seems. Well, that, it's always a I mean, freebie. The, the, the debt, the, the, the government debt and the consumer debt are really not levels that are healthy. And, and really, when you look from a macro level, 
what's interesting is there's still dollars coming into the United States because people believe it's a better investment than the alternative. And realistically, most most debt out there, countries and everything is is really not a good credit risk, quite frankly. Well, it does seem that the credit rating agencies are finally starting to pay a little bit of attention there, (laughs) whether it'll have impact or not once you have the printing presses. It, it, it always seems to be the, the sort of it, it will be a big issue at some point, but not yet. It seems to be the narrative yet never seems to arrive. Uh, Dr. Charles, I wanted to get your views on all things in the East Med. Of course, the terrible tragedies happening in Gaza are of a massive scale. That's it's hard to really comprehend. And this whole region is in, a, in I would say, a grade of depression uh, uh, that is infiltrating everything and every walk of life and every conversation. But I wanted to get your thoughts on the um, the very pragmatic impact on East Med. Uh, uh, you're obviously, that's your area of expertise, East Med gas development uh, uh, and, and, and the not development of it. What is the impact at the moment? What could be the impact? Your thoughts on that? It really depends on how long this is going to last, but uh, the immediate impact is really on on Egypt. Egypt is in, in dire straits at the moment. The economy of Egypt is, re- it is re- really bad state, and um, they have uh, problems with gas production of their own. The, the gas production in Egypt has been declining for over three years now. And it's highly dependent on imports from Israel. So the cessation of, of exports for, of gas from Israel to Egypt for about five weeks caused havoc. They, it, it impacted uh, uh, Egyptian industry, but also uh, led to continuous blackouts and inability of Egypt to export LNG at a time when they need that income from LNG to shore up their finances. So Egypt is in a bad state, and Egypt is is on the way to presidential presidential elections. And there are now concerns that it it might impact real the, ones. Uh, real ones. That's a question. That's a good question. Uh, there are concerns concerns that it might impact the election of Sisi, but I don't think so. I, don't, I think he's going to come back. The, the The issue, though, is that Israel recognizes that. And maybe that's one of the reasons that it hasn't uh, returned of Tamar back to Tamar gas field, back to production, because it really doesn't want Sisi to go. For Israel, the presence of Sisi in Egypt is is, is highly important. But uh, also it has impacted um, gas ex- LNG exports to, to Europe, which, uh, according to any, may not resume until about uh, December, January. Uh, probably January, but even then, uh, amazingly, the uh, price of LNG in Europe is is still very low, and the reason is because gas storages in Europe are completely full. So the war uh, has produced an impact, but it's highly localized. Uh, There are questions as to whether some of the projects being planned by Chevron in uh, Leviathan, Tamar, uh, in Cyprus might take off or might be might be delayed for a period until uh, we see what happens. But um, 
What about the field off of Gaza, which some reports are indicating might have some nefarious reason behind all of this terrible tragedies that are happening? What what's the the the, the field there? Is it uh, who owns it? What how substantial is it? The gas uh, in you mean in uh, in in, in uh, of Gaza? Yeah, it's not uh, at, well. Who owns it is still a question mark because uh, nothing can happen without Israel uh, agreeing to it. But it's not big quantities. I think this is, has been highly exaggerated. It's small quantities of gas. It's not going to lead to anything other than maybe if eventually is developed. There were plans to, to do something about it. There was uh, Qatar and Israel sort of came to an agreement to do something about it. It will help the Palestinians, but uh, right now it's going nowhere. And um, even if it does, as I said, quantities are small, it won't really have any significant impact on, on anything in the region. The, the problem is, the, is how long this is going to last. How long is it before Israel is out of Gaza and a plan is found to take this whole thing forward? And it's absolutely unclear as a result. Uncertainties continue, and they will continue until the, the, there is an answer to that. Um, and uh, there is the question as to whether Hezbollah is going to do something, because there is a concern that actually Hezbollah might be sort of brought into the conflict by the Israelis themselves, because uh, there are continuous skirmishes at the north, and maybe we reach a point where Israel loses its patience and starts attacking Hezbollah and creates a problem. Hopefully not. So far, Hezbollah seems to indicate that it doesn't intend to go uh, any further than it does at the moment. Uh, well, certainly the, the the very large U.S. armada about uh, 20 miles from my house here is uh, keeping everybody a reminder that uh, getting involved is not a good idea. I, I think it might be having an effect. I don't know. Uh, but certainly it looks like, uh, uh, at least up to now, that, and the Iranians have stated as much, they have no interest in getting involved or being dragged involved involuntarily from proxy forces. So that's uh, if, if it hasn't sucked them in so far with the tragedies we've seen, uh, it's hard to see what would. Let's go to the survey question today, because ultimately it's all about OPEC meeting the next sort of big factor in the in the markets, uh, at least for the oil markets. Will a rollover of existing bouquet, the existing bouquet of OPEC plus supply cuts, which include the solitary, the Saudi voluntary one million barrel a day cut. So we have a whole bouquet of cuts there. It's hard to to sort of keep your head on them, but there is both the OPEC plus cuts and then there's the voluntary cuts. We put them all in the bouquet. Will they be enough if they roll them over at their meeting next day, next week to put an $80 floor on Brent for the first quarter? A simple rollover of existing cuts, including the voluntary cuts into the first quarter, enough for an $80 floor on Brent in the first quarter. Welcome your thoughts on that. Rob, the macro might not be your expertise, but I know all things IRA and, and the big bionic uh, fund that the Europeans put together for the, the, the in green infrastructure, if you like, and incentives there. 
do they end up having to be something OPEC thinks about because they're sort of coming, the rubber's meeting the road in 2024 on some of these big uh, investments? Uh, your thoughts on those two mega funds that have come into play uh, in Europe and America over the last year, but the rubber to meet the road on actual projects impacting uh, new energy supply in 24, and, and that has to be considered when looking at supply of the whole. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. I mean, so look, the I think at the end of the day, Europe and the US are racing pretty hard on clean energy, new energy technologies, and it's you you've got these big infrastructure packages that are kind of helping to push demand, uh but at least in Europe, the the gas price is still a pretty big driver. If if, if someone who doesn't look at European gas prices very often, we're at about fifteen dollars per mmbtu in Europe versus about three in the U.S. That's a pretty big incentive to to move forward on things like solar and wind. That being said, there have been some pretty high profile uh, misses on the on those uh, items here lately. The UK held an auction in September and got no interest in offshore wind. Uh, so, and 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 the U.S. has had some very high-profile cancellations uh, just recently from Orsted on some projects off the coast of New Jersey. So, so th- there is a there is this sense that things are moving forward, but it's in starts and fits, and uh, the higher interest rate environment, and we've seen a lot of cost escalation that's still working its way through that have affected some of those project economics. So uh, there's a lot of things happening on, say, wind, solar, electric vehicles, all of these things. But, you know, these these are marathon type questions as opposed to sprints. So, you know, does any of that feed into uh, OPEX thinking about, you know, early 2024? I doubt it. But do, should they be thinking about how those things play into the general energy market narrative? As you look out kind of five, 10 years, I, I think it's relevant. But what about in the more immediate term, Rob, on that? You know, one of the narratives that have been growing this year, and certainly we've been looking at it a lot, is has energy security slayed energy transition? Is there a, a, a or not in that sense? And uh, where does uh, the investment go into new oil capacity uh, from the majors or, or lack thereof? So I'm just curious as to where is is that just a good soundbite or has energy transition you talk about orsted and the lack of auction buyers in the north sea and so forth and the wind side uh is it having an impact is that rushed energy security since since ukraine and now with the issues in the middle east i i think most of that's more rhetorical than than actual so if you look at most companies they're not really adjusting strategy too much. I mean, you, you've seen some some headlines coming out from some of the European oil majors about some slight adjustments here and there. But, you know, they're still working towards uh, long-term goals related to reducing their carbon footprint and clean energy and all these other things play into it. So while I do think there is a little bit of a shift and a little bit of a narrative focus on energy security, I think the 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 practical nature of most companies that operate in this space is that they're optimizing for 10, 20, 30 year projects, right? So 
the gyrations of the market, even interest rates, all these things don't really move the strategy component too much. Uh, let's go to Brian for final word on on his thoughts. Uh, we wanted to get Brian your insights. I mean, another thing that's happened since OPEC Plus has last met as these major, 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 major mergers in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, oil production, uh, the the Exxon uh, uh, and uh, Chevron buying the the biggest actors in the shale fields. Uh, how should OPEC Plus interpret that? You think will that result in a big increase? In, in, in investment by those big energy companies with lots of capital uh, to expand production in that area or the opposite, perhaps, that actually now that these big actors have control over the shale play, that all of these mom and pop and these guys weren't mom and pop, they'd certainly become quite big in themselves. But ultimately, they're guided by a different North Star and actually could contain uh, uh, outsized uh, growth in the Permian. Your thoughts on how OPEC Plus should read these big mergers and acquisitions that have taken place in the U.S. oil industry? Absolutely. Uh, I spent a few years actually working for Chevron, and one of the interesting things is they look across their entire portfolio. So if you have a Permian-only producer that can deploy capital and get a 20% IRR on a well, well, that's their only option. That is their, so they will drill a 20% return because it's it's a greater return than their cost of capital. But when you have a Chevron, Chevron is it might say, well, 20% is nice, but I can go over here in a different part of the world and I can get a 45%. So I'm not going to spend money here. So it's more about those companies getting the right type of reserves for when it's primed to drill it. So they may actually be saving it for a later date. That's how I would read it. And if, uh, if, if I was viewing it from an OPEC lens, that's how I would view that transaction is that they've just kind of put their stakes in the ground and they're, they're going to hold on it. But it really depends on what their competing investments because they're going to, they still have a limited uh, amount of capital deployment that they're going to make each year. So they're going to have to spend it wisely. And if there's an international return that beats a Permian play, uh, they, they're going to, they're going to fund international. Dr. Charles, last word for you, uh, looking ahead to the OPEC plus meeting, Saudi Arabia continuing to carry the heaviest bucket for everybody else to enjoy $80 Brent with their you voluntary 1 million barrel a day cut, which has resulted in a, a, a decree of Saudi facing a budget deficit this year now. Uh, and so they are carrying, so obviously they're secured a higher price on the average, but nonetheless, a million barrels a day is a big number to be giving up to the shale producers, to Guyana, and to everybody else who can come into the market at those price levels. Your thoughts, Dr. Charles, on the OPEC Plus meeting and Saudi Arabia's willingness to continue to carry the heavy bucket for everybody? Well, with um, Saudi Aramco believing that uh, some of the problems we are facing now are because of speculators, I think they will extend the cut to the first quarter of next year. And um, with both OPEC and IEA predicting um, increase in demand, despite despite what we are seeing now, um, it uh, they will probably do that and see the result uh, of having prices uh, coming up again. And I think that, that would be the outcome 
before uh, by the by the twenty sixth of November. Um, I don't think the rest of OPEC is going to do anything else, anything more dramatic. They will probably leave things where they are, but Saudi will extend the cuts by another quarter. Well, it certainly in some ways might be a help to Saudi Arabia going into an OPEC plus meeting with prices on the weaker side of their desired range, because it does get everybody's focused minds and uh, and it's a good way to get everybody to behave again because I do think uh, quotas will come back on the focus. What are you producing? What are you meant to be producing? What can you produce? I think for the East African or the West African producers, you said you can produce this, but actually you're not. Uh, so I think while quotas come into focus at a meeting, it's good to have uh, the prices on the weaker side of your range because it does get everybody's attention. Listen, we'll wrap it up there. Brent crude oil trading at $77.43. Uh, and WTI uh, heading back towards the low 70s. Will we actually see it break through? We'll probably have to wait till next week for that to see uh, if we break through the 70 handle uh, as we go into the weekend here. But thank you so much, Dr. Charles Elinas in Cyprus, Brian Pieri in Denver, Colorado, and Rob Barnett in New York. Really appreciate your time today and this morning, tonight, uh, and, and look forward to having you visit with us again on occasion when your schedules allow. Thank you so much and have a good weekend. Bye-bye.